0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. My name's James Whitmore, and it's Sunday the 13th of February. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this show is being broadcast from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Earlier this year, scientists warned that the Great Barrier Reef could be facing another mass bleaching event after record-breaking sea temperatures in early summer, which would be its sixth mass bleaching event since 1998. But the latest forecast suggests the reef will get a reprieve this year, with temperatures and clouds keeping the corals cooler. That's on top of a good 2021 for the reef in which coral cover increased. Even so, with temperatures getting higher due to human caused climate change, coral reefs face an uncertain future. Today we're going to hear from two different experts with quite different perspectives on the future of coral reefs. But first, here's an announcement. G'day, this is Ozzy Battler from Astronomy Class. You're tuned to 3CR on 855 AM or 3CR.org.au. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. Keep community radio alive. Peace. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. And please, if you like what we do here at Out of the Blue, Consider becoming a supporter by subscribing to 3CR. You can give us a call on 9417 8377 or head online to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. If you actually go deeper and 12 to 20 metres deeper into the ocean, then you have the reefs there. They're that that are in pristine condition and they're growing all the time. That was Senator Pauline Hansen talking about diving on the reef during the mass bleaching event of 2016. 2016 was a bad year for the Great Barrier Reef. Record sea temperatures led to widespread coral bleaching, part of the third recorded global mass bleaching event. A fifth of corals died on the reef, and the next year the reef bleached again. Two-thirds of the reef were affected by the back-to-back bleaching events. At the time, the impact seemed so bad that some people started talking about the reef actually dying. But does that sort of talk help the fight to address climate change? Kerry Foxwell-Norton is a professor at Griffith University, and she's recently found that a satirical obituary for the Great Barrier Reef did more harm than good. All right, Kerry, can you take us back to 2016? Can you tell us about this article that was published in a US magazine?
1: Yeah, it was a... Um an article written by uh, Rowan Jacobson and it was an obituary to the Great Barrier Reef and it started with the words the Great Barrier Reef of Australia passed away in 2016 after a long illness it was 25 million years old and um, this obituary to the Great Barrier Reef just went as we say viral and um It was received differently in different places and in the context of um, Australian climate change politics and climate wars, it had um, a very uh, particular and peculiar um, impact, which is what we were exploring when we um, we did our work on the impact of satirical um, communication uh, on the Great Barrier Reef and on climate change communication more broadly.
0: So what did you find? Can you tell us a bit about how you did this research?
1: So what we have in in that obituary is a classic case of um, uh, an international, well it was just an American actually, outside, leisure journal, outside um, writing an obituary that went viral and was distributed far and wide through our communication networks. And when it landed in Australia, it uh, triggered a fierce debate About whether or not the Great Barrier Reef was dead, you know, Pauline Hanson goes out with a snorkel and says, "No, I've had a snorkel around and everything's Mm. fine." Um, That the the, the Australian news media and its you know climate skeptic, um, uh, its climate science deniers, uh, you know, enter the fray. Uh, Tourism businesses that uh, border the reef are impacted by statements like that, as people go, "Well, I won't won't bother going there if I'm going to see a dead reef." Or, you know, conversely, there's this last chance travel, you know, idea. So it had a whole range of impacts beyond what Rowan Jacobson, in, 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 a, in, a, in a small statement that, you know, was, there was very little he said about the article that's recorded at least. So I was just trying to write a little think piece, you know, and just let people know that, you know, there was a lot to lose here. But the way in which that translated into the context of Australia and climate change um politics and war and climate action here um was a a fair distance from um jacobson's original intentions and in our um, estimation damaging um in terms of stalling action on climate change
0: Mm. it's interesting because i mean there are people say lots of silly things about the reef and climate change why do you think this one had so, such a, a negative impact compared to, say, uh, pieces by outright about outright denial or things like that.
1: Do uh, you mean like the denial of climate science denial? Yeah. Denial? Well, I think um, I mean there's a, there was a coral bleaching event of two thousand and sixteen, a mass coral bleaching event, and that was already you know a part of you know conversations about reef health. Um, with scientists, you know, raising concerns about... Um, and, you know, very distraught about the uh, the reef. There was the context of the World Heritage Committee and the IUCN, the Reef Monitoring Mission, coming to the reef and threatening to put the reef on its in-danger listing. So there's a whole um, uh, social and cultural and political context that meant that obituary, uh, when it was published, was a likely site of uh, a likely place to you know explode implode on the national and international stage
0: so what are some of the better ways to talk about these issues and given as you're saying that the context does change all the time but can you give us some ideas on how better to talk about you know what's happening on the reef because there are the reef is facing you know huge challenges
1: yeah that's true james And, and um you know, you think, um, you know, chemistry and physics are difficult until you try to, you know, communicate with the public and with the public. I mean, that is really difficult science. Uh, people don't stand still. They talk back at you. You know, they have their own ideas and people live with a diversity of experiences. Um, so, but there are there, there is something salient about the way in which we communicate the Great Barrier Reef, which, you know, in the Australian and international context is, you know, really a harbinger for, you know, the, 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 the threats of climate change on our ecosystems. One of the things that uh, myself and my co-author um, Claire Conquez from the uh, University of Ta- Tasmania um, question whether or not speaking about the Great Barrier Reef as though humans could kill it uh, is, is, is useful. Hmm. So if we, if we continue on... Um, uh, if we continue to speak about our environments and ecologies as though they're places that um, that we can control, we can um, we can protect, uh, then we continue to elevate ourselves as you know the as the most important in the room and. Uh, for us, the inverse may be far more threatening or shocking. To speak about as though we can't kill the reef is perhaps more uh, confronting than, um, than saying that we have killed the reef, because perhaps what we are witnessing and what we are doing is threatening our own existence as humans. So there's there's um, there's that sort of broad, broader um, perspective on climate communication and how we communicate environments. We know too that uh, the best way to um, engage communities in uh, discussions about climate changes is to uh, engage with them locally, which is why community radio is such a strength here and such an, you know, a, a, a reservoir of potential and opportunity um, alongside the existing efforts of the sector to engage its audiences in discussions surrounding climate change. There's extraordinary potential as, um, uh, colleagues Tanya Dreyer and Poppy D'Souza have pointed out recently in their listening in um, final report to treat these um, community radio stations as community listening posts. So there's a whole, there's a way in which, you know, governments and, uh, and policy makers and decision makers and those seeking action on climate change can find, can develop locally relevant and meaningful initiatives and ideas if they engage with people locally so rather than um, bashing people repeatedly over the head with scientific fact um, there may well be other um, more social cultural and political avenues to pursue because in fact James and this is this is the other point I'd make is that um, the science of climate change is, is settled I mean we know that we, it's not long before audiences and myself include are you know, somewhat uh, confused or overwhelmed by the numbers. You know the one one point five degrees, the two degrees, uh, sea level rise figures. Uh, you know how many um, three fifty parts per million carbon. All these um, figures, but really the the challenge of of climate change and how we might uh, how we might prosper and flourish in a climate altered future are challenges of people, communities and human societies. So uh, I think we we shouldn't underestimate we shouldn't confuse climate science communication with climate communication and communities. Um, they're, they're distinctive things. And communities are complex and require more than just a one way transfer of information, but you know a deep and thorough engagement with what, what makes sense locally and how we might leverage that to um, better develop uh, strategies Mm. to support those communities. I I suppose the other thing that I would say, James, is if we talk about the reef being dead,
0: Mm. then
1: that's overwhelming for public. So, I mean, what do I do? You know, if the reef is dying despite all the money and all the science being thrown at it, um, that can disempower people and communities. You know the reef dying. I can't do anything about it because all these decisions are being made above my head, um, far distant from my everyday experience of the reef, either as a as a reef commu- as one of the reef communities that um, that border the Great Barrier Reef, or as a, you know, an everyday person who is not necessarily a part of discussions around the Great Barrier Reef and the, um, the impacts of climate changes. So. I think that these apocalyptic discourses that just say, uh, you know, it's dead, uh, paralyse action. We think we can't do anything when there is, in fact, um, so much that we can be doing and can be done so that in the future we secure, um, uh, we secure the health of the Great Barrier Reef and other ecosystems and our own, you know, throughout, throughout the world. I think that that's a really important um, point to Mike.
0: That was Kerry Foxwell-Norton from Griffith University. After the break, we'll be hearing from another reef researcher who's been studying fish larvae. But first, here's a song. This is King Stingray with Get Me Out.
1: Become a 3CR subscriber today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Be a part of your community radio station.
0: That was King Stingray with Get Me Out and you're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Wake up,
1: wake up. Come on, please! Oh, I don't
0: want to go to school. Five more minutes.
1: No,
2: you, Dad, me. Okay. Get up, huh? get up. Time to school, time for school, this? time for school. Right, I'm oh boy, up.
0: Boy, boy, boy. Nemo. The larvae of fish that live on coral reefs aren't quite as cute as Finding Nemo, but the 2003 animated film did get something right. Baby fish do tra- travel, sometimes huge distances, between coral reefs. This is important because it replenishes fish populations, and lots of other larvae are out there moving between reefs, including the larvae of corals. Not all reefs are equal, though. Some are particularly important to protect because they're a bigger source of fish larvae than others. Dr Joseph Miner is a research at Macquarie, researcher at Macquarie University and recently found that a majority of these most important reefs aren't adequately protected. Can you tell us a bit about how fish larvae spread between coral reefs? Um, yeah, the
2: larvae move between coral reefs um, as a result of the ocean currents, and also the innate properties of those larvae. So, um, some larvae can only move, um, a certain distance before, if they're not, if they don't find a deal settlement spot, they die.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so there's variation in their capacity to move to different play to, 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 to move to other reefs and also um, that capacity can also be enhanced or um, shaped by the currents, ocean currents.
0: And is the same true for a lot of other reef species, like corals, for instance?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, In this case, we primarily looked at fish larvae, but um, uh, it is the same for coral larvae as well. Mm. Um, but so when you're looking at how, when you're seeking to understand how the coral larvae moves, then you would use those properties of the larvae of the corals. So different species, larvae from different species would have different properties mm. that would then impact on how they move.
0: Yeah. So can you tell us about this study? What did you do and what did you find? Um, so
2: uh, I think it's important to sort of uh, take a step back and think about, um, uh, you know, what the, the the genesis, or rather, the importance of, of, of what we did. Mm. Um, so the the global biodiversity policy and um, that the UN's um, policy that was in place for the last ten years, twenty ten to twenty twenty, uh, basically called on. 195 member states of the UN, um, to protect 10% of their oceans. And in selecting those areas, they did emphasize that they should, uh, one of the key, um, properties is well-connected systems, well-connected ecosystems. So it is actually, um, um, embedded within that policy that, um, in creating protected areas, we should think about connectivity as one of the characteristics. Um, and, and, and just coming from that, then we sought to understand what what is the importance of connectivity in, in the ecosystems and how have we done in terms of protecting connectivity over the last 10 years. I don't know if you know that... Um, we are starting, I think in March, there will be a meeting, a UN Convention of Biological Diversity uh, meeting, CBD we call it, um, that will be discussing the next biodiversity policy um, the, after the expiry of the last policy that ran from 2010 to 2020. So now, if we're going to be adopting a new conservation policy that's going to guide, that's going to guide conservation in the future, then it's always fair that we look at how we've done in the past so that, you know, as we plan for the future, then we can know that um, how we did in the past, in particular, in this case, uh, with regards to protecting connectivity.
0: Mm. What does it mean for a reef to be well-connected?
2: Um, when a reef is well-connected, uh, then it means that it is, um, it is performing, its ecological role, uh, its functional role, as we would call it. Um, and in this case, it can be either distributing larvae to other reefs or receiving larvae and transporting. And what we found out was that um, different reefs perform different roles as far as connectivity is concerned. Mm-hmm. So there are some that receive others, um, um, uh corridors and others are, are mostly um, uh, give us so they disperse they export larvae mm. and um, so and one in one of one of the components of this studies is we, we, we sought to understand okay does it matter what role um, a reef plays and in terms of its protection so what are how are those characteristics related to the ecosystem services—the goods and services that we derive uh, from the ecosystems? And one of those, obviously, being fisheries. Mm. Um, and as you would know, um, coral reefs, um, especially in the developing world, that they support—you um, know—millions of people. There uh, are people who go out to coral reefs just to, you know, fish, and so that they are able to put food on the table. Um, you know, pay schools and everything. Um, so they're highly dependent on these resources. Um, and if you think about it, at the same time, that policy that I mentioned earlier, we're asking, you know, nations to protect a huge chunk. Mm. Well, 10% doesn't sound like a huge chunk, but if you're going to tell a fisherman not to fish here because, you know, that reef will be protected, um, then that could bring out other issues. and so, if we're trying to uh, promote development and address hunger and, um, and at the same time conserve biodiversity, we need to create a balance between those two needs, mm. right? Um, um, and, and therefore, what this study da- did is we sought to understand the different characteristics connectivity characteristics, how, what role the different reefs play in promoting connectivity and how, what, um, and what services those roles can be associated with. For example, we found that some reefs that are sinks, um, so sink areas tend to receive a lot of larvae, um, and this can be very good for fisheries, Our have, have you know, this needs to be regulated. Even the fishing needs to be regulated. Uh, fishing can be allowed, but with some kind of regulation. Um, you know, whether it's gear management or time or license, some kind of licensing. Uh, but on the other hand, there are these areas that they don't receive much, but they are sort of source of larvae, um, and these areas tend to be very sensitive to human pressure, to to to, to fishing. Mm-hmm. So one of our recommendations that. You know, these are not areas where you want to fish, you probably want to protect these areas as no tech reserves to allow those areas to export larvae to other areas. And then we have another category, the corridors. These are regions that primarily um, conduits, basically, if you like, the reefs that um, create a bridge between other reefs, that connect the reefs. And again, these are very important for biodiversity persistence, mm. so fisheries is just one of the things that connectivity promotes. The other thing is by the um, biodiversity, bio, what we call the biodiversity persistence, and promoting biodiversity especially now that you know with climate change and everything and ocean warming, it's really important for these areas to be resilient to climate change, and and, and therefore the, the 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 gene exchange between reefs um, promotes that resiliency. And, we have sufficient larvae arriving from different reefs, then it does promote the reef's capacity to resist to external disturbances such as climate change.
0: Did you look at any places where um, the protection of reefs are in the right places? Yeah, yeah, we, we, we did,
2: we did. Um, in, in many occasions, we found that um, some of the areas that are protected are actually um, not um, they do not align with the role of those reefs, but that's not what what we included in our study, though, is the, um, the, the gap, quantifying the gap in the protection of connectivity. So overall, areas that were identified as important for connectivity, um, 70% of those areas are currently not protected. Mm. And that's huge if you think about, you know, the... the the conservation policy over the last 10 years did specifically and explicitly require that connectivity be one of the attributes Mm -hmm. um, as we identify areas for protection. Um, So obviously, like I said, um, this work is highly relevant to the placement of the protected areas. Um, But then there's also um, ongoing work that we're currently doing in factoring in climate change. So the circulation and the movement and, of larvae might change with changes in climate. So um, as, as the next step of this study, we're working on understanding how climate might impact the current arrangement, the current arrangement of connectivity.
0: That was Dr. Joseph Miner from Macquarie University, and I'll post links to his study and Kerry Foxwell-Norton's study on the death of the reef on our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash radioblue, where you can also listen to this show again and find all our previous episodes. And that's all we've got time for this week. We'll be with you again next week, and in the meantime, stay well.